0: Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Today I'm chatting with Kate and Alyssa from the Lesser Slave Watershed Council. Uh, You might remember that we had a chat with the Executive Director of LSWC last spring about water quality during spring breakup and some of the work that LSWC is doing on that front. Uh, But today we're chatting about using natural water sources for livestock. So before we get into all that fun stuff, would you mind introducing yourselves and how you got started with uh, the Lesser Slave Watershed Council?
1: For sure. I know it's a little bit tricky because you don't have faces to go off of, but I'm Alyssa. Um, I've been working with the LSWC since 2019. Um, I do all of the education and outreach programming uh, so working with schools and community groups and doing event planning and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've been doing outdoor and like environmental education work for pretty much 10 years now, which is super weird to think about, um, cause I still feel like I'm not old enough to have been doing it for 10 years, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, like I said, I do the education programming and stuff, um, The biggest part of my job, so there's like four categories of work that the Watershed Planning and Advisory Councils or WPACs do. Um, It's planning and policy, monitoring and reporting, education and outreach, and we are seen as conveners and collaborators, so bringing people together. Um, So my role falls mostly into the convener and collaborator part and the education and literacy part.
2: Hi, my name is Kate, and I've been with the LSWC for just over a year now. I'm the Watershed Coordinator, which means I work on coordinating projects on the ground with producers and landowners, as well as working to support the various events and activities happening at the LSWC. I am an Environmental Farm Plan Technician in training, and my role is to promote watershed resiliency in the Lesser Slave Watershed region. I'm available to landowners of all types to help troubleshoot water issues up with natural
0: solutions where possible. Okay, so to start us off, what counts as a natural water source?
1: The word natural can be a little bit tricky because a lot of the meaning behind it comes from people's personal perspectives. Um, But when we're referring to natural water sources, I guess that would include uh, lakes and rivers, little creeks, springs, ponds. The ocean i suppose um whereas man-made sources would be something like a storm pond oh, drainage ponds uh drainage ditches and a dugout right that makes sense uh
0: we did do an episode with uh, dan benson from alberta agriculture about dugouts here in i think december <laughs> um, so our natural water sources and like ponds and that sort of stuff vulnerable to the same sort of issues as dugouts during say a drought uh like cyanobacteria higher do- dissolved solids sulfites that sort of stuff
1: well all water sources are vulnerable to pollution it doesn't matter if they're man made or if they're natural but mm. um so yeah they do they are vulnerable to those sorts of issues um but they the types of issues that they're more likely to encounter compared to a man made water source is there are differences between the two. Uh, If your natural water source is flowing, so if it's like a river or a creek or something that has like active water movement, there is a like a lower risk to the quality of the water because it is moving and constantly refreshing itself. Whereas something like a pond or an oxbow, which is a piece of the river that has been cut off from the main stem, um, where the water is sitting and there's no movement in the water, those are way more susceptible to water quality issues.
2: Yeah, and during times of drought, there's so many risks to water, just as it is. Uh, The most important thing is to work towards maintaining good water, water quality, no matter what the weather condition is. So during a drought, the amount of water can decrease, so the amount of solids, nutrients, and bacteria that might be in the water would stay the same. So this can lead to an increased concentration of pollutants, which can negatively affect the health of livestock and decrease overall water quality. So these concentrated nutrients, since there's less water and the same amount of nutrients, coupled with high temperatures, often cause explosive algal blooms and create a chance for cyanobacteria, or you might know it better as blue-green algae blooms, which are toxic to livestock, smell bad, and are dangerous to wildlife. Bacterial growth is also a concern during a drought for your contaminated water source with fecal coliform bacteria. These pollutants go up in the water levels as the water levels drop from evaporation. Prolonged drought can take a toll on the health of riparian areas. When it eventually does rain after a period of drought, there is an increased risk of surface runoff due to loss of vegetation and lack of water at high temperatures. Soil loss and erosion are another big risk to water quality, which faces everyone. But in particular, those with properties along a body of water. When it comes to livestock and water quality, producers should pay attention to calves and lactating cows as they are less tolerant to the declines in water quality than a healthy adult animal. So if
0: your water quality has declined, you will see that is the first sign. Right, that makes sense. So obviously, we can't drain out and clean a natural water source. (laughs) It's it's tough to do that when it's a running stream or something like that. And we can't just dump in a bag of copper sulfate or something to kill blue-green algae in a a natural water source. Uh, But what can we do to kind of improve the water quality in these natural sources uh, that we use for livestock water? Uh, The biggest thing here is to keep
2: a healthy riparian area around your wetland or water body. Um, There's a number of things you can do to maintain good water quality Um, because the riparian area acts as a kidney for the whole system, the water body and the area surrounding it, filtering and trapping pollutants before it can make it into the water. Plants like willows and dogwoods are great at absorbing nutrients, and their long roots can help hold the soil to minimize the erosion and slow the movement of overland water towards the water body. It's also important to set up a space in a way that minimizes the risk for contamination from manure and fertilizers and other potential contaminants.
1: Yeah, another good way to uh, sort of protect or safeguard your water sources is to actually keep the livestock out of the source itself. So using something like a off-stream watering system is a great way. Um, I mean, I know cattle can cause a lot of soil compaction. Uh, So if we keep them away from the water source, we minimize that, um, which minimizes the loss of vegetative cover, helps to keep your riparian areas healthy and reduces the potential for a lot of different types of contamination. Um, If you fence off your creek or dugout or anything like that, and combine that with using an off-stream watering system. That's a really like wonderful hybrid solution. Um, if you are in our watershed region, so the area kind of around Lesser Slave Lake from High Prairie to Slave Lake itself, um, we can actually help you to cover the costs of some of those projects. Um, and we have a off-stream watering system that is available uh, for a one season trial, if you want to see how it works for your, um, your space before actually going out and making the purchase of one. Awesome.
0: All right. So one thing people talk about a lot in terms of natural water sources is how they store water for drought years and reduce erosion during flooding and stuff. So how do we make sure that our natural water sources are ready to catch excess water, especially this coming year after they were hit pretty hard with the drought?
1: Oh, the last couple of years have been a real roller coaster for water. (laughs) Like 2020, it just rained nonstop. And then last year was super hot. So Natural sources, so wetlands like bogs and uh, muskeg areas and things like that are basically sponges. So they really hold on to water much better than obviously any like dugout or anything like that could. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really makes a huge difference in terms of an area's ability to minimize flood risk. For a long time, a lot of our wetlands in agricultural areas specifically were filled in. And when we lose those wetlands, that means we lose the the ability for that land to hold on to water, Uh, meaning that like spring meltwater, summer runoff and other things like that when there's high water events, um, particularly after a drought, that water would have been stored in those spaces, that space no longer exists, which can lead to increased levels of flooding. Mm -hmm. So really the number one thing would be to ensure that our wetlands are maintained to keep them on the landscape and leaving them as intact as possible rather than filling them in. Um, During a drought, you'll see that uh, wetland areas are one of the only places that will have a lot of surface water and lush green vegetation. Um, And that's because of the the sort of sponge-like function that they provide to an ecosystem. They really slow down runoff, they trap and hold sediment, they hold onto nutrients, which can prevent them from entering into larger bodies of water like lakes and rivers. Um, so really wetlands are great a great s- sort of natural filter for our waters in addition to holding onto waters and slowly releasing them, which minimizes both flooding risk and the impact of water loss during drought from high temperatures.
0: Right, that makes, that makes sense. So speaking of flooding and excess water and all that, um, beavers can cause a lot of flooding issues in, and it can cause quite a bit of damage when you're trying to farm that land or graze that land because once land gets wet, it's very compactable. But I've also heard that beavers can be really useful for, for water and that sort of stuff as well. So can you talk a bit about the benefits of
1: having beavers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so beavers for a long time have been thought of as pests. And that was sort of their only identifying factor. And sometimes they totally are. But in terms of land health, they're incredible at increasing the biodiversity and water retention of an area. Um, they've been around in some form for almost 30 million years, like they're a very well established species. I mean, we don't have the giant ones that were like the size of grizzly bears anymore, thankfully, just got the little guys, but that's a long time to learn how to manage their ecosystems. And along with humans, they're one of the only species who modifies their landscapes to fit their needs perfectly, which is also why we often butt heads with them. Um, but beavers are experts at holding back water and keeping it on the landscape. They are amazing land management partners, especially for cattle producers, as they're able to provide a source of water that is often more consistent than seasonal sources. and in a lot of cases more um, accessible than say like a stream bed or something like that. Mm-hmm. If you were to pair a pond that was created by a dam from a beaver with an off-stream watering system, you would actually be super likely to have a cleaner and more consistent water source for your cattle as well as offering flood mitigation, increased biodiversity, and with all those things, you'd have really a healthier piece of land altogether. Cool. So
0: even with all that, beavers can still flood significant areas of like farm or pasture land. Um, So are there ways to manage beavers so that we can have, (laughs) we can have the best of both worlds, I guess. We can have healthier land and increased biodiversity and, and cleaner water as well as
2: Yeah, so we all know the story of the persistent beaver. You'll go through, you'll remove the dam, and then a few weeks later, it's back in the exact same spot, um, if not another one also on top of that. Um, Obviously, every situation is different, and there are risks to infrastructure, crop production, and other land uses that need to be considered. Uh, One management option is that landowners can consider using a device called a pond leveler, which will work to help the beaver ponds stay the same size while allowing the water to leave. Essentially, they are these pipes that extend through the beaver dam and will trick them so that they don't continue building. It's the sound of running water that triggers the beaver's natural instinct to build a dam. Pond levelers help to mitigate upstream flooding and allow beavers to coexist with humans on the land. Once a pond leveler is installed,
1: it becomes cost-effective
0: and low maintenance. They're and also just... really cute, but that's just... <laughs> <laughs> I think beavers <laughs> <these> are adorable. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> I just want to c- circle back a little bit. Um, we talked a little bit about how, like, how wetlands function as a sponge. Um, and I just wanted to expand on that a little bit. It's the organic matter that makes it so sponge-like, right? Because I know I know bogs and swamps are very heavy to organic matter. So is that
1: right? Partially, yeah. So um, a lot of the plants that grow in wetland areas have really, really long, kind of hairy roots, so they're mm-hmm. really good at like sucking up water. Um, but in especially in muskeg kind of boggy areas, there's where you'd find a lot of peat moss peat moss is like the partially decomposed like plant matter from mm-hmm. you know uh needles and leaves from trees in combination with the partially decomposed actual moss itself um, and I know if you've ever gone to like a garden store or like PD Mart and gotten the little pucks to start seeds for your garden, that is actually compressed peat moss. And so, you know, when you pour water on it, you can see just how much water it actually holds in it as it expands in size. So I'm pretty sure it's like five times its weight. It can hold in water. So oh, wow. that organic matter is like a huge factor in the water retention in wetland areas.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
1: Yeah,
0: I guess the other one is that the issue with, with bogs and swamps and stuff is that it's, it's really hard to make them, to, to produce anything with them, aside from the water holding capacity, which is huge, yeah. um, as we established last year. <laughs> um, but I know there are ways to like consciously graze wetlands and stuff in a way that's not as detrimental. So can you talk a little bit
1: about that? I know, uh, sort of cycling through different areas. So, if you're going to have your cattle spend any time in a like bog area, mm-hmm. not letting them spend like an entire season there, but spending like a week or whatever, um, and rotating it through with other spaces, right. is a way of consciously grazing it so that it doesn't begin to negatively impact the wetland itself. Um, But like you said, a a lot of wetlands are not, they don't make good farmland, right? Like they don't, Mm -hmm. they don't grow a lot of, like you can't grow great crops off of it. And so a lot of times they're seen as like, oh, I guess I'll just like get the cows to eat it. But honestly, like your best bet is to just leave it be if you can. Um, There are programs out there which will actually... If you have wetlands that you've turned into other things, um, the Alice program, which I'm sure you've talked about on this podcast before, uh, actually pays farmers to return their um, agricultural lands back to natural, like naturalized uh, wetlands. So there's you know opportunities like that if you're worried about losing the land itself uh, for production in any way. Um, but really, like the the biggest best thing that a wetland can do is to just be a wetland to just let it do its thing
2: right and then like in times of drought like let's say you're trying to have food for your cattle and there's nothing on their normal landscape right so you might have had riparian fencing up and there's a time and a place to graze your riparian area so like you let the plants kind of recover a little bit and then later in the spring that's when you let them graze and then during times of drought, those plants are usually still pretty green and luscious. So you can let your cattle in there when there is no other food on the landscape for them.
1: And that's the Mm -hmm. benefit of leaving them as they are, because then it provides that emergency backup situation for when there's like a really bad drought and there's no water anywhere else. Right.
0: Yep. That makes sense. So I know uh, that LSWC does a lot of work with producers who are improving their natural water sources like you talked a little bit about the Alice program but also like in in and around slave lake you guys do a lot of of work so can you talk about the some of the ways you do that yeah so the bulk
2: of my role at the LSWC is working with producers and landowners of any kind to try to make um, their operations maybe their summer homes whatever they have more sustainable and to protect uh, water quality within the watershed Mm -hmm. So like Alyssa had mentioned, we work from Hyde Prairie area to Lesser Slave Lake, all around that area, to Slave Lake and on the other side, Um, and parts all the way up to the Swan Hills. That's kind of our reach. So we're here to help with, there's like several grant funding opportunities available to different types of landowners. Like if you're a producer, there's the Canadian Ag Partnership. Um, Pretty much anybody's eligible for watershed resiliency and restoration grant funding. Um, We work with Big Lakes County to do the Alice program, um, different things like that. So we can definitely help um, plan, uh, implement, and in some ways fund uh, all these different uh, watershed resiliency projects. So um, some of the projects that we do are like cattle exclusion fencing for riparian areas, wetland restoration work naturalizing uh, river channels and stream banks Um, and then through CAP we're also able to help with like off-stream watering systems and other things that might support um, your water quality like maybe even drilling a well that kind of thing so that you can support your own operation
1: right Um, One of the things too is like, I know uh, rural internet isn't always the greatest. And (laughs) um, so if someone does need help going through those applications, they can actually call us and come into our office and Kate or myself or Megan will sit down with them and actually help them go through that application step by step. And I know Kate mentioned earlier, she's uh, an EFP tech in training and Megan is actually a certified EFP tech. So even if someone wants to do an environmental farm plan, uh, the two of them are also able to help producers do those applications as well, as they're often precursors to a lot of the other funding opportunities that are out there.
0: Right.
1: Awesome.
0: You mentioned very briefly in there the um, process of... Re- rewilding I think you said or or restoring kind of stream banks and stuff can you talk a bit about like what that process looks like so that's pretty unique to every
2: situation that we've encountered so one example we have completed um is a uh, stream bank restoration just off the west prairie just kind of in in the town of high prairie here Um, Mm -hmm. So we've gone through and put up some riparian fencing so that to hopefully keep people out of the area. Um, And then we went through and we did a whole bunch of shelterbelt planting. So we threw in a bunch of willows and stuff, and we've just been monitoring their progress year to year. And that's been helping to reduce erosion going right directly into uh, the West Prairie River as well as um, just kind of helping with water quality. So like anything that might have been just washed right into the water kind of gets caught up in the riparian zone on the outside of the
1: water body. Yeah, so that area that Kate's talking about is actually, it was uh, historically burned by the fire department as a like a controlled burn to minimize the risk to the town itself. So for a yeah. long time, there was actually no plant life along that, the bank at all and it's right near where the uh, town of high prairie actually pumps its water from the high prairie or from the west prairie river to provide water for the town itself Um, so it's a really important area to make sure is is safe Um, and nearby there was actually an old dump site that was starting to be exposed by the erosion and so um, the combination of pulling invasive species, planting natural like native plants um, and riparian plants like willows and dogwoods, which is the shelterbelt trees that Kate was talking about. Um, And having the fence up minimizes the chances of like ATVs and things like that getting into that area. Um, And in the last few years, you can actually see some of the willow trees from the original planting, which I think they did in like 2017. And there's Mm -hmm. like, There's trees that are still there and they're you know it's a really like quite a healthy looking area and um just past it where there is still there's like not as many trees and different plants there the erosion is still quite significant but just a little bit further would be north on the river um where we did all of that planting there's hardly any erosion happening there at all so it's it's a really good spot to to look at when you want to see the difference that um, restoring a stream bank and restoring a riparian area—how good it can actually do for the for the system. Awesome.
0: All right. The other question I had was that we, we have listeners kind of from all over all over Alberta and uh, that sort of stuff. So you're not the only only watershed council in in the province, obviously. So uh, how can people get a hold of of their local? their local watershed council? Well, we actually
2: have um, a link to a list of all of the different WPAC organizations. So WPAC stands for Watershed Planning and Advisory councils. So we're one of 11. And um, linked um, will be a list for all the different WPACs and how to contact them.
1: And a bunch of other resources, too, that we think are like Vital. good to just know about, including some stuff from our website. Um, I'm going to go in and add, we've got some uh, project like show piece things on our site that I'm going to put the specific link to rather than just our general website, because they're kind of buried in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that way people can see some of the stuff that we have done with other producers in the past.
0: Phenomenal. And do you want to uh, discuss some of these other, other links and resources you've, you've got that we'll put down the in the...
1: We've got a YouTube channel, which is super exciting. Wow. Um, we've got some like really cute little like explainer videos that um a graphic design team did for us last year just about our watershed in general so if you want to know more about that those are on there but we also have a lot of our workshops and webinars that are recorded on there so if you didn't have a chance to log on to them or you just didn't know it was happening um you can go onto our youtube channel and watch those all you have to do is look up the Lester slave watershed council on youtube
2: yeah and then some of these other resources we have here are like our partner organizations so like cows and fish and Um, We're EFP technicians, so that's a resource people can look at. And there's this other great resource here, um, the Alberta Riparian Web Portal, which is something that all of our kind of WPAC organizations band together to make. And it just kind of is um, a resource for people to look at where work has been done to protect riparian areas uh, across the province to see where work needs to be done, where it has been done, where it's good quality, um, that kind of thing.
1: And if you have kids and you really want to do like some family, uh, adventures doing water quality stuff, that is something that we have been considering doing over the summer, running like a Day day camp kind of thing. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, then absolutely like you know, send an email or call our office and um, we'll make sure that those are in the show notes as well.
0: Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Is there anything else that you guys want to mention before we sign off? Anything we've missed or any cool projects you guys are working on? Invasive species workshop is coming up in April. So if you're interested
2: in learning about invasive species from a really great agricultural fieldman, or Nicole Kimmel, one of the leads at the Alberta, is it Alberta Invasive Species Council? No,
1: uh, Nicole is a provincial government. So She works for the Alberta government on their invasive species programs.
2: So if you want to learn about that from very reputable sources, you can look out for that on our social media. We're just in the planning stages there.
0: Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you both for, uh, for
1: coming on today and uh, it's always nice to be able to do something like this. It's a little different from our day to day. Absolutely.
0: Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca want to get in touch have a burning question or a topic suggestion send us a message on twitter instagram or facebook thanks for listening